0: Very appreciate it. Um, you know, something I'm excited about in this next year is a series that we're starting next week called The Greatest Story Ever Told, in which we take a much deeper dive into the story of the gospel. Um, and let me tell you why we're doing that. I, the gospel is more than just news that makes one a Christian. It is word for us, story for us, that brings new life, but it also sustains us. So what I'd like to do is just take a deep dive on looking at what the gospel means and how we apply it to ourselves, how we apply it to each other, how we apply it to our neighbors in the city, and then what it means when the gospel interacts just with the cosmos, just with everything that God has created, the good news for the cosmos. But then I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about how we see the gospel in such a way that we are looking at a diamond from different perspectives, Some of you have heard this metaphor when the gospel is being described. It's like a gem that you can look at from many different perspectives, and although it's the same gem and it's the same beauty, you have a different, I guess, viewpoint of what it looks like. I I, I like to think of it more as like an orchestra that is playing. Um, You hear some beautiful music coming, but there are different sections and different groups of instruments that are contributing to the overall sound of it all. So we're going to look at how the gospel is good news for those of us who are lonely, We're going to look at how the gospel is good news for those of us who are addicted, those of us who are tired and in need of hope, those of us who are looking for approval and acceptance. And by doing this, we're going to get to look at the different lenses of the gospel. How Jesus is our justification, how he is our redemption, how he is our reconciliation, how he is our exemplar or example, how he is our Christus victor or our victory, how he is our ransom. There are so many different ways of perceiving and looking at the same beautiful gospel that I know that I know that as you start to hear them, the gospel will become more beautiful to you, which is one of the things I pray for every day is that the gospel becomes more beautiful for you, more clear, more compelling, and then just more irresistible for you, right? And not only that, but whenever you see the gospel more holistically, you will be able to apply it to your spouse, to your family, to your neighbor, as you listen to the context of their lives, right? I, for instance, when I became a Christian, and I, I, I radically became a Christian, it was it was the flip of a big switch for me. I was one way on a Sunday, Monday, I was totally different, and I never looked back, right? But I'd heard the gospel, what I felt like was, was dozens of times, but there was one way in which it was presented that I'd never heard of it before. It was new to me. It was new to my ears, new to my mind, but when I heard it, I thought, I, I can never go back. It's what T.S. Eliot used to say. He said, whenever the mind is stretched to hold a new idea, it can't go back to the same shape ever again. And that's what it was for me when I heard that Jesus was my victor. And what that meant for me and how it meant I, I had to deal with my sin and how it meant I would grow going forward. When I heard that, I became a Christian when it was radical for me. But not only is there a part of the gospel that's more beautiful for me, it's important for me to know the different viewpoints of the gospel as I'm working with my neighbor. Or as I'm working with the person that I see at the gym or see walking down the block or I see at Starbucks. Or there are different people and all of us have different stories. And as you learn to listen to the context and the history and the story of somebody's life, you will start to see which gospel application will speak the loudest to them, right? So we're going to look through quite a few of them. And and my hope is, is that you become more fluent in the gospel, not just for yourself and for those in your immediate orbit, but also for this city, right? That we would become a church full of beautiful evangelists. Not, not, not the evangelism that I grew up learning, which was a canned presentation where I taught that the ultimate prize was heaven, right? But, but a more beautiful, relational, strong, confident, enjoyable way of extending the gospel to people in a way that they hear it, in a way that they want to know more about it, a way that you don't have to feel the shame or the condemnation that you probably have felt up until this point. Right, that you would enjoy this thing called evangelism, and not not be uh, scared of it, or feel condemned because you feel like you've been a bad one, right? So I'm excited about that. We're going to be going through it for quite a while. It's actually going to be a a very preeminent piece in who we are as a church because we knew last year coming into this next year that we're going to have to tackle a couple of our big values, one of them being evangelism. But in order for us to be a good, strong, evangelistically robust church, what that would mean is that we would need to be stronger with how we perceive and handle the gospel, right? Because listen, you're not going, to be, not going to be very effective explaining the gospel to somebody else if you can't explain it to yourself, right? Or explain it to those who are around you that have a lot of grace for you and how you botch things up. If we can't tell each other the good, the good story, the greatest story ever told, we're never going to be able to tell those people that are far from Christ. So one of our big values is the gospel, right, among the other two, which is community and mission. So we are a people by the gospel For the gospel, right? We are a people, community, by the gospel, for the gospel, which is mission, okay? And so as we tackle this big, the big cog, the cornerstone of who we are, which is the gospel, the whole gospel, all of it, as we tackle that, it will help us in community, it will help us in mission, so I'm very excited about that. Even the classes that we'll be doing next year, starting the last week of February, we'll start marching through classes that we'll kind of work along with and tailor with this series that we're doing in the gospel. It'll be a class called Missional Living and Evangelism, and I think it's going to probably take some of the, the, the 30,000 foot view work that we do from the pulpit, and it will drill it down to just boots on the ground. How does one Extend the news of God, the good news of God uh, for mankind through the person of Jesus. How do we do that with someone that we just met? How do we do it with a family member, right? How do we do it with the guy that's already given us the middle finger on the whole thing? How do we do it with a, with a nine-year-old? How do we do it with, with, hear me now, those who are in their 70s and their 80s. How do we do this thing? It's just not that mystical, and it's really not that far out of reach, right? So we're going to start learning through the nuts and bolts and the broad work of it all. I think the second big thing I'm most excited about in this new year, um, just before we even jump into the word, is this thing that Hillary already announced in our prayer time from nine. From yes, what did what did she say? She said nine thirty, right? Nine. Thank you. I actually go here. I'm in the staff meetings from nine thirty to about ten to ten fifteen ish, depending on how many people are there and, and are contributing. Depending on how rowdy that time gets, right? Um, we are going to be having this time of prayer. But not not just prayer of like, hey, my heel hurts really bad. Can we pray for that or something like that? We want to pray for the city that is lost. We want to focus on not just this church, but other churches in this city, like we prayed this morning in our time, that they would do a good, suitable job of not just preaching the word of God, but anchoring everything we teach even in the gospel, right? Um, So that we would pray for not just revival in the church, but awakening in the city, right? We, We want to be a church that travails in prayer, as she said, a lot of our work happening by prayer. And so something I'm very excited about. In fact, so excited that we're reshuffling everything we do um, so that even our classes, which are traditionally 8.30 to about 10, just be, and not because that's strategic, it's because I won't shut up, but it's, they're, they're going to be from 8.30 to 9.30 with that hard stop beginning in prayer. For those of you that are serving and set up and tear down, we know that that starts around 9 30. And for those of you that want to be a part of the prayer, we know that that starts at 9 30. So we're just, we're making room for our values, so to speak. Okay. Anyway, we'll talk about it a little bit next week. I just wanted to kind of shoot that across the bow so that you know what is coming. But if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 3. That's going to be a very helpful passage for us today. It's going to show us Christ's probably a little bit more clearly. And this is a little bit of a different sermon than my style of preaching. I don't typically preach like this. Um, Not like I'm going to be weird or anything, but this probably is going to feel a little bit more um, clinic or teaching oriented than it will be preaching oriented. Um, As I say a lot of times, I'm probably more of a teacher that gets to preach, uh, but it's kind of almost tradition now at Legacy that the last Sunday of the year, unless it's before Christmas, the last Sunday of the year, I just spend a little bit of time talking with you about how the Bible gives us precedent for setting resolutions and good strategic goals, okay? I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to that. It's something that I'm always excited to talk about, but but our culture naturally slides in this direction anyway this time of year, right? That's why you're seeing top 10 lists everywhere, right? Top 10 best movies top 10 worst movies, top 10 parkour fails, top 10 kitten videos, top 10 whatever. This is the time where we look back, right? And we start kind of assessing where we've come from and looking forward because it turns out, it turns out humanity loves a new start. We love a new start. I know I do. I do. Because the internet's the internet, right? I figured out That when Wednesday comes, January 1, that that will be Wednesday number 16,016 for me as a human on this planet, right? Over 16,000 Wednesdays I've lived. (laughs) It's crazy when you think about it. But in my heart of hearts, it still feels like Wednesday number one because it's New Year's. A new page is being turned over. We all like the idea of starting brand new, fresh, which is why I believe. The gospel picture of being a new creation, leaving the old behind, sloughing it off, kind of forgetting that there was an old part of us, and tackling and exploring this new us. I think that's why it's so attractive to people. I think it's built into us, even from the garden, to want a new, fresh beginning. We just want to turn over a new leaf, which is why you hear that phrase all the time. Here's the thing, though. New Year's resolutions aren't your Bible. You won't find them anywhere. But being strategic with your goals, that is in the Bible. In fact, I'm going to make the case that not only is there biblical precedent to setting good strategic intentional goals, but if we do a good job, even that, even our goal setting can be gospel-shaped, can be grace-driven. Right? I think that's going to be important for us as well. You see, Jesus lived and he died and he lived again with great intentionality. He was strategic with his life. He had a reason for the things he did and when he did them. And he called a family of brothers and sisters, co-heirs, unto himself that would also be strategic in their goal planning and in resolving or resolutions with their life as well. Now, our intentionality... And how we are strategic it's kind of mysteriously and beautifully woven in and mingled with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so we are working and the Holy Spirit is also working and what's also unique is that our goal setting our resolving is not just for our glory but it's actually for the glory of another there are things that separate the way that disciples of Christ set goals and those who do not love Jesus so here's the good news for you the good news is it's only the 29th today so you, you, could, you still have some days to kind of gather some steam and cough up a couple resolutions, which I know is difficult for some of you. Actually, statistically, half of you. Half of you statistically had no intention of setting any goals before you walked in here. I hope to change that. And I know you got great reasons for not setting goals. I'm sure they're really impressive and maybe even spiritual sounding. But can, but can we just agree on something? You're not where you want to be today, right? <laughs> can we just agree that your goal setting or maybe lack thereof is from last year is what got you here where you're at today I think we can all agree on that and probably if I'm being totally honest you will grow to a certain degree even if you don't set any goals you'll grow right I mean I grew in some areas this year 2019 that I didn't plan for it was accidental growth unplanned growth but God had a plan for it he was strategic in how he grew me So I know there is truth in this, but here's another truth. If you don't change key elements of your life that has been holding your head underwater, well, listen, you're never going to grow. If you don't ever change those things, you're never going to grow in those things. And we know this intuitively, which is why we're always strategic and have great follow-through in other things. Whether you want to change your fitness or your finances or everything in between, don't we strategically set up a goal? or a set of goals, and follow through with them, and revisit them. And, 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 you know, if they stink, we shatter them, and we come up with new ones. Some of our goals work, some of them don't. Some of them are too aggressive, some of them are too easy, some of them are just dumb, right? But we just keep adjusting, and we keep building these goals, because we want there to be an aim to our life. So what I want to look at with you today in Philippians 3 is how you can aim your life towards intimacy with Jesus with great intentionality, and with eye to the gospel. The eye to the gospel and how the gospel, the good news of God, addresses your heart when you succeed brilliantly in your goals or when you fail brilliantly in your goals, how the gospel is still very good news in both cases. So let's look at Philippians 3. This is the word of Paul to a young church, and we're going to be in chapter 3, verse 10. We're jumping in mid-sentence, but you kind of have to with Paul because the sentences are so long, right? It's almost like cutting somebody off. So verse 10, he says, That I may know him, him being Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brother's. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is a famous passage, but I mean, Paul is, Paul is saying that with his life, you'll find him pressing and striving and reaching And working. That's the mood you get from this. What is he looking for? An intimacy with Jesus. An experiential intimacy. An experiential relationship with Jesus that goes way beyond just bumper sticker level. Right? Here's what Paul would not be satisfied with. A shelf full of books a year full of Sunday sermons, a few devotionals per week, right? A bunch of his resolutions checked if he is not closer to Jesus. If he does not have more of Jesus, experiences more of Jesus, has a deeper intimacy. I mean, if you were to try to describe his posture, it is leaning forward. That is his posture. He was motivated to press and reach and strain every dimension of God by any means possible. His words, not mine, right? I mean, it's interesting, all the athletic terminology he's using. You can almost picture the sweat and the pulled muscles and the grueling face as he's reaching for something that's just right out of his view. It's, it's as if he's saying in this passage, I'm not with Jesus yet, which is his highest prize. We know that from this passage and others. His highest prize is to be face-to-face with his king. right? But he knows he's here, and there's a lot left to experience So that means there's a lot of work to be done, and he's happy to do it. A lot of work to be done, a lot of reaching, straining. You know, that's not the case with salvation, just growth. It's not the case with salvation. In salvation, God finds us, and he finds us helpless, without the ability to work, without the ability to even contribute. We can't barter for our freedom, can't lift ourselves up. He even finds us not even looking for him, right? I mean, when God found me, he found me striving, he found me pressing, he found me straining, but I was going a different direction altogether. I was chasing something else, striving for something else. It's something that Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, I was striving after the wind. (laughs) He found me not even caring, not even looking. He ruined me for anything else when I was not looking for him. That's the way it is for all of us. Salvation comes to us when we are not chasing it down. Growth, however, must be pursued. Must be pursued. And there is a a mysterious, like I said, collaboration, a cooperation of sorts with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says in the chapter before this in 2, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, how does God do that? Does it through his Holy Spirit. Well, Luke, does he do that instead of us working? No, he does it when you're working. It, they, they both can be true. It's mysterious for sure, but it's true that when we work, that God is also working within us at the same time. But we don't naturally slide towards holiness, we naturally drift away from holiness. Some of you know this because some of you today, you're not growing. You're just not, right? No goals, no resolutions, just kind of want to be left alone. No intentionality, no str- strategy, no striving. You need to know that that is inconsistent with Christianity. Inconsistent. It runs contrary to the gospel that won you. You think in your mind, this is what you think in your mind, that when you are not reaching and lurching forward and straining and grabbing, that you must just be still sitting idle. You're not. You're drifting back. There is no such thing as neutral. You're leaning forward or you're leaning back. Let me tell you, the best version of your life in this next year, the best version of your life in 2020, it's going to find you striving, working, leaning forward, making great effort. And if you want to enjoy Jesus more, an increase in fruitfulness, you're going to have to aim your life with some awareness and some intentionality. You're going to have to do that. Peter agrees. I'm going to flip over to Peter. It's okay if you stay where you're at because I'm going to be in and out of this passage. But this is in 2 Peter 1, verse 5 through 11. It'll be up on the screen. And Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what, this is what Peter is saying. If you lack the stretch marks that you get from growing, then you've lost the conviction of what the gospel has done for you. If you don't attain and are increasing and adding to what you know, if you're not moving forward and being diligent, it's because you've lost sight and you've lost conviction for what the gospel has done for you. He says, practice aiming your life in such a direction that your life's greatest achievement is more of Jesus. That that is your life's highest achievement, the pinnacle of what you can do here on earth, is to get more of Jesus. Because here's the truth. We're going to be right back here in a year. How do you want to be different? How do you want to be different in 52 weeks? All right. Do you know Jesus as much as you want to know Jesus? Are you satisfied with the level of intimacy that you have with Jesus right now? I mean, I'm not. I'm not, which means I'm going to need to be abrupt and diligent and persevering. It means I'm going to need a wise plan. I'm going to need to have grace for myself when I mess that plan up and have to change it, have to hit refresh on it. But my soul is going to need to break a sweat. And I know what some of you are thinking in your mind because I hear it all the time around this time of year, last week of the year, the first week of the new year. Yeah, Luke, but you could be intentional without writing all that stuff down. I mean, Luke, you can be intentional. You can be strenuous without formalizing it and kind of putting it down and revisiting it and looking at it again and recruiting help into it and building smart goals. You can be intentional without all of that stuff. And I guess that's true. But in what direction exactly? (laughs) what direction where are you aimed if you're not doing those very things right this is my favorite time of year um, to trail run i don't get to do it as much anymore but this is the time of year when all the dumb snakes are in their holes and they're not coming out anymore right And so you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about the dumb spiders making these walls of webs that you run through in the morning. You're just just wearing webs the whole time. You have to worry about it. They're not coming out right now, right? So it's a great time to do it because the leaves have already fallen and they've been now, by by now, pounded into the ground so you can see the contours of the ground. This is a great time. It's hard on my body. It's good for my soul. Most of the time when I'm running on a trail system in a state park or a national park or some sort of a park, especially on trails I'm unfamiliar with, I will come across a sign or a plaque of some sort that has a, a map, to some degree, never to scale, but a map, to some degree, with a little red dot that says, you are here, you are here. I don't always need that map, but I'm always surprised how off I can be. Sometimes when I've never been to a place, I think, I think I, think I know where I'm at, and then I look at that map, I'm miles off. That little red dot kind of, is honest to me. Three years ago, I ran at Big Ridge State Park and it was in late October, so the leaves had just started following and kind of covering everything. And um, the trail system had lacked all of its signs. They pulled them all down. I think they were redoing them or putting new ones in and I just came at a bad time. No signs, no red dots, no trail markers, no nothing. But I'd already run there once or twice in my life, so I guess I felt like I was an expert. So I just decided I was gonna run without the signs, right? here 's here's the truth: I was strenuous. I, I, put, I put forth a lot of effort. I was you know excited. I made executive decisions. I was pressing towards a goal. But because I had no idea where I was, I had no idea where I needed to be, and what was supposed to be just an average little six mile jaunt turned into 22 miles out there, right? And listen, before you're anywhere close to being impressed with that, I I whined the whole time, I thought I was gonna die, right? Ran out of water in hour number one, hour number five, I'm like dragging my leg to the truck. I mean, it just took forever, it was a saga. The whole thing was just this big saga. This is what I learned, big life lesson for me. It helps to know where you're at. (laughs) Positional awareness, critical, it's critical. Listen, live your life how you want. If you want to live your life without a red dot on your map, you will go places, you'll even be tired when you get there, they'll probably be the wrong places. They'll probably be the wrong places. So what I thought I would do is maybe break down the general idea of how to form a goal. Now, a year ago and two years ago, we drilled down really deep and we got heavily specific, very specific on what it means to build a goal. I'm not gonna do that. We're less microscope and more telescope in, in this type of a sermon. But if you want to know how to build a smart goal, if you want to know how to be very specific in your goal setting, there's a blog on our website. It's the featured blog. You can just go into resources, go to blog, and it it's got some clickbait-looking title like resolutions that don't stink or resolutions that matter or something like that. It will take you through and walk you through through. step-by-step how to establish a good goal. But if we were to zoom out, I would just say, where are you now? Number one, where are you now in your journey? And are you satisfied? Where, Where is your red dot? Honestly, where is your red dot? This is how you find it. If you don't know, you take time and you pray fast. Fast and pray with an expectancy that God is actually going to tell you where you're at prayers that start with lord you've got to show me what is more valuable to me than more of you lord where is it that i keep hitting the same potholes but i just can't see what is it lord that you are really ready for me to step into with all of my weight and change and let the lord speak to you let the lord show you because he will he'll do that Don't even waste time making excuses for why you're at where you're at. Don't even worry about the shame that will try to creep on you, the condemnation that you'll be tempted to believe in because of where your red dot is at. Just ask the Lord, where am I? And whenever you feel like you've got a good handle on that, ask those who are close to you, right? It gets a little harder. When you ask those who are in your DNA group or your calm group or your spouse or your best friend, Ask them questions like, What parts of my character are furthest from Christ and his gospel? Right? What in my life do you think is more valuable to me than Jesus? And let them speak. Let them help you find where that red dot on the map is for you, where it says, You are here. Right? Valuable. Every year I have an annual assessment. It's anonymous for our pastors, and this year we're adding the staff into it, where the staff of this church and the pastors of this church assess me, right? And it's all anonymous, so I don't know who said anything. And here's the thing. Sometimes I pretty much know what they're going to say. The the question's a little bit of a softball, where I feel like I have a pretty good sense of awareness. Sometimes I actually perform a little bit worse than I thought I would. I thought, oh. I thought I was a little better in that that little department than than everyone else thinks I am. And then there's some areas where I think I just blow it. I just hit foul balls all the time. And they think I'm excellent at it, right? It helps me get a more accurate, honest appraisal of where I'm at. I know this all sounds like difficult work, and it is. But you need to know that accurate self-awareness, that's not natural for you. It's not natural for you. We don't do a good job of seeing ourselves correctly. You're going to need help here. You're going to need to employ some help here. Okay. Second step real quick. Where do you want to go? And what, and what exactly would that do for you? Right. When I work with sick leaders or other pastors, whether it's in leadership, self-care or planting a church or a church that's already planted that wants to plant another church, whenever I find myself in a seat where I'm doing coaching or consulting, and I usually start off the appointment with one question is that, how can I be helpful for you today? Where do you want my focus most today? What I'm asking is that they give me their biggest knot that I could help them untie it, right? That's the question number one. Second question I always ask is, what will that do for you? How's that that gonna help you exactly? It's good. It's good to know why we want to be different. It's good to know why we want to change. And then what we do is we take these directions of where we want to go and we submit them to the Lord. Give them to the Lord. And understand that God creates growth in us. We reach, and we strive, and we press, and He changes us from the inside out with His Holy Spirit. And both mysteriously are true simultaneously at the same time. Jonathan Edwards, back from the 19th century, he said, <clears throat> and when he was a young man, he actually developed a list. You could find it still online. You could just Google it. It's called a 70 resol- resolutions. He came up not with a, with a, with a New Year's resolution, but life resolutions. Some of them are pretty basic, and some of them are pretty, pretty hard to reach for, 70 of them. But he says this after he developed his 70 resolutions. He says, being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So he depended on God's grace for all things, including his growth in holiness. Because, hear me, a, a self-made person, that's a modern ideal. It's not a biblical one. A self-made person, that's something culture has created and loves to talk about. It's not a biblical idea. It's not. And here's just a quick warning as you submit these goals to the Lord, right? The red dot, which you usually submit, what you usually want to change it usually has to do with behavior. We're doing something we don't want to do, or we're not doing something that we do want to do, right? That's typically how it looks. I wanna pray more, I wanna cuss less, I wanna handle my money better, I wanna handle my eyes better, my mouth better, read my Bible more, get drunk less, be a bigger, better, faster something. It's always, I wanna do less of this and more of this. That's always how it looks. Some of those goals are admirable goals, but the behavior, there's behavior that you want changed, that comes from something deeper. You just need to remind yourself when you're cooking up your goals that there's something behind the something. There's something going on behind the something. There's something that's creating that behavior. Right? Ask yourself, why am I still here? Why, why is this a goal for like the fifth year in a row? What is it about me that doesn't want to change? These are harder questions, are they not? Right? What is behind the lack of prayer? What is behind the fact that you just don't want to read your Bible? What is behind the fact that you don't want to give your money away, that you don't want to make friends? What is behind it? What's lurking there? There's something behind the something. And not only not only, why are you where you are, but why do you not like it? These questions are getting even harder, aren't they? That's what it takes if you want to have accuracy and honesty and integrity. You have to ask some really hard questions. Do I hate the fact that I don't read the Bible as much because I'm less impressive to God, less impressive to myself, less impressive to others? Do I want to not be addicted to this over here because it makes me look weak? Why do you not like where you're at? Why do you want to change? Because remember, our goal is not to manage our sin better. It's not to improve our performance, but it's to enjoy Jesus more, which means you can't just look at your behavior. You've got to look at your heart, right? It means you can't just pull weeds. You have to pull them. You can't just mow over them. By the way, if you've never heard that before, that's to pull weeds instead of to mow over them. That's not a a metaphor or an illustration that's original to me. I've heard several pastors use it. The last pastor I heard use it was Matt Chandler. Um, What's interesting is he grew up in the the same area that I did. We're both West Texans. He went to college at Abilene in the same time I went to school in Lubbock, Texas. And what that means is is we both grew up with the same kind of grass, (laughs) All West Texans have the same type of grass, which means there's just not much of it, right? Is this is dry. It's arid. It's a desert. And there's two kinds of West Texans when it comes to how do you take care of your lawn. The first kind is they dump an obscene amount of money on their lawn, both in water and imported grass seed, to make it look like it's natural. When we all know it's really not. When we drive by. Then there's the second group of people that they've just kind of come to terms with the fact that it's never going to really look like they want it to. So they've learned how to coexist with weeds and grass and a bunch of dirt. Right. And I guess there's a third kind. The last two times I've been back to West Texas, people are installing AstroTurf out there, literally AstroTurf. I had to get out of my car and go and touch it just to make sure because they've just totally given up. <laughs> they've, totally, they've totally given up on it altogether. Here's what's interesting from all my years of owning homes and doing the lawn in Texas. After you mow your lawn, the weeds look just like the grass. You can go across the street and look at your lawn and squint your eyes a little bit, and it all looks like grass. It all looks like a legit lawn, right? You come back in a couple days, the grass hasn't grown, and the weeds are up to your shins now, right? It's just the way it is out there. The weeds must be pulled. You can't just mow over them. They will grow back. Listen, if you set out to improve your behavior by just managing your sin better, you're just mowing over the weeds. You're not pulling them. You're not truly addressing them because your heart is always going to masterfully create idols. It's good at it. There's something behind the something. There's always an idol in the background demanding to be fed, whether it is your approval that demands you use social media, whether it is your comfort that demands you hoard all of your money, whether it is your, whatever it is, your acceptance, your sense of glory and pride, there's always an idol in the background demanding that you feed it. How do you know what it is? Where are the weeds? Because listen, suspending your Instagram account, that's one thing. Ask why you're addicted to it altogether. That's, that's a different thing. Why are you even addicted to it? What are you looking for? I mean, giving to the church in 2020 more than what you gave or giving the missions or just giving your money away this year more than last year, that is one thing. But ask why you were scared to do it last year to begin with. What were you looking to hold by not doing that? Reading your Bible this year. Awesome. Do it. But will you feel guilty if you don't do it? Why did you feel condemned last year when you failed at that goal? I think it's also important that we catch something in what Paul is saying in his passage when he says he forgets what's behind him. Before he talks about his reach forward, he talks about how he's forgetting what is behind him. Right? It's interesting. He doesn't mean what we mean. This doesn't mean he's blacking out and literally forgets, and it doesn't mean that he is ignoring it either. All he's talking about is he looks at how the gospel addresses his mishandling of things. He looks at how the gospel addresses his pride. He looks at the gospel... Um, appraise how he succeeds, how he fails. He lets the gospel speak to where the red dot is at. If you see where you're at and you hate it, just rehearse the gospel to you, right? That you are free to succeed in your goals. And listen to me, you're free to fail. And it doesn't affect his love of you, his excitement over you, how he engages you, But if you stand and you look at where your red dot is at and your goals and you're super proud, it's like looking at a trophy case. You need to rehearse the gospel to yourself as well. This is what he's talking about. This is Paul saying, the gospel defines me, not my past, whether my past is good or my past is bad, right? Okay, third step, real quick. What will you get rid of in order to make change? This is big. Can I just say right now, right off the bat, this is the number one reason people don't follow through with their goals and their resolutions. Number one, this is it. This is the number one reason, right? Samuel Chand in his book, Leadership Pain, has one of my favorite quotes of all time. I use it all the time. He says, there is no growth without change, no change without loss, and no loss without pain. You'll only grow to the threshold of your pain. Pain is actually a part of progress. If I avoid all pain, I'm avoiding growth. So whenever you address your goals for this year, don't just ask the question, what will I pick up this year that's new? Ask yourself, what will I put down in order to pick up this new thing? In fact, for every new thing that you are looking to pick up, you ought to probably put down two things, right? This is how we have to look at how we set goals and resolutions. If you want to develop a robust prayer life, give your money away, make relationships, make friends, learn more about the gospel, read more books, build your theology, grow in evangelism, it's all going to require a change to what you're currently doing. And that change means you're going to have to give something up, and that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt. You have to drop something. Change means loss. Loss means pain. That's the simple equation you're going to want to remember. This is why resolutions die. (laughs) Good goals. Good goals. Great goals that, were tried, that people tried to add them instead of install them, right? If I want to add this to my life, what needs to go? That has to be a question you ask yourself. If I want to pick up this new thing, what will I have to sacrifice, right? And then fourth, the final principle that we'll look at when it comes to being holistic with our goal setting is will I give myself grace when I fail and hit reset and try again? As they say in football, a lot of plays are just two yards and a cloud of dust. All that work, not a lot of yardage gained. And that's how it is with our goal setting a lot of times. And this is where we ensure that our goals are grace-driven. Let your goals and your resolutions be in the shadow of the cross, where God has already commented on the values of work and rest when we see what God has done for us. Let the work you set out to do be shaped by the work that has already been done for you. This is what separates you from anyone else that's just setting goals just to be bigger, better, and faster. What I mean is is you want to strive and reach and press from a rested posture. And I know that sounds odd. It sounds counterintuitive, right? But from a rested soul to work your tail off. Spend yourself But spend yourself as someone who doesn't have anything to prove, no one to impress. Work, work hard. But work as one who is already loved, safe, accepted, approved, regardless of the outcome of whether you even get to your goal or not. One of my favorite books was written by a guy in this church, Matt Norman, in his book Foreign, and if you don't have this book, we're giving it away on the table out there. You just run by and grab one. We just keep buying them. He says this, our striving... It's supposed to look like that of a top-conditioned athlete going for nothing short of first prize. This is what God tells us is supposed to be the look and the feel of our lives. It's going to look like white-knuckling. It's going to look like hard effort. Yet we work hard restfully, meaning we do not strive out of fear, but out of joy and a rested, a restful, satisfied heart. Work restfully. Strain restfully. Reach restfully rested. Because here's the thing, you have zero chance of meeting your goals perfectly this year. Zero. You're either going to make them too easy or too hard, or you shouldn't have made them at all, right? You have zero chance. I do too. I do too. But you're free to rebuild them. You're free to take a, a second look at them, restructure them, be more honest, because the whole goal is to press forward to the goal where the prize is more of Jesus. More of Jesus. And the good news for me when I set my goals and the good news for you when you set your goals is Jesus was zealous for the work before him. We hear that in the Bible. He was striving to glorify the Father and bring us close to him. And now you and I, we are free to work and to strive to gain more of Jesus. And we can do that by any means possible. This is what Paul tells Titus, his disciple. In chapter two of Titus, he says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here it is. Rest comes to you because Jesus was zealous for good works. He worked so you can rest, right? That's why we're called the Sabbath people because he works, he worked really hard and then by his perfect work on the cross, he creates a Sabbath people or a Sabbath nation, you and I, where we can really employ ourselves but we're really free. We're really rested all at the same time. What this means is, if you fail at all of your goals, rest that Jesus did not. And if you fail at all your goals, you need to know that there's no punishment that comes to you because you did that. If you fail at all of your goals, you need to know that his good work has been imputed to you, credited to your account, given to you. All of your broken goals and broken living has been imputed and given to him. right? His blood cleanses all of us from a shame-filled life and he makes us a part of his family, brings us close, sits us at his table and he creates in us hearts that are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works and we can rest and work at the same time. Because here in a moment, we're about to take communion and you need to know that is various people go back there and if you're a guest you just you just need to know that that's something that we do every service we go back there and we take communion if you're a part of this if you're part of this kingdom of God if you're a Christian feel free to do the same but what you need to know when you go back there and you take a little piece of bread you put it in the juice and you take it and you pray to the Lord what you need to know is that is the symbolic wage that Jesus earned as he gave you the prize Right? That is symbolic in many ways of the rest that we get from another person's work. When Jesus worked and worked and then worked some more, he got a paycheck, and that paycheck was given to you and given to me. He got a victory, and he shares it with us, and we get to take part of that. He reached the goal. He got the prize, and then he shares that prize with us. He pressed towards the cross. He took our sin. He took the punishment that was meant for us because we self-glory. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Jesus speaking to you and me in Matthew when he says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, listen to me. This isn't just personal in its implications. It's missional. It's corporate in its implications. It's corporate. I mean, a church full of resolution makers, a church full of goalkeepers, that's not going to shake the gates of hell. But a church full of people who strive to know Jesus deeper, experience him more, by any means possible, that strain and press and work Well, that'll create a revival in a church. It could create an awakening in a city. Let me ask you are you where you want to be? Do you want to change? How bad do you want to change? What will that do for you? What about when you fail? Are all your goals and resolutions shaped by the gospel? Do you feel free to scrub it and start over? You know, some of us don't want to change. We feel fine where we are. We want to be left alone, right? Let me just say, I think you're in the most danger. You're in the most danger. You're in love with the wrong kingdom, bearing no fruit, pretty much useless to those around you and useless to the city, right? As Leonard Ravenhill says, he's an old evangelist, he says, there are no reduced rates for revolution of the soul, If all you want is just to be saved, then the Lord's battle has no need of you. Be warned by your lack of care for intentional, grace-driven striving. If you're just going through the motions, idling, be warned. You're in the most dangerous of places. Here's the big question for all of us as we finish up today. What prize is sitting before you that is more valuable to you than more of Jesus? If that prize were put on a scale and more of Jesus were to be put on the other side, what is heavier, really? Don't just say the right Sunday school answer. What is really heavier for you? Where is it that you were just mowing weeds and you're not pulling them? Where is there something behind the something and you're just failing to address it? Go ahead and stand with me. We're about to pray and be finished. Listen, I know there's folks in here that are probably far from Christ. Maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're searching, but you know you don't have a vital, beautiful, experiential relationship with Jesus. But maybe you feel something stirring. I'm just going to echo what Christ has already said in the in the book of Matthew where I'm going to say come to Jesus if you've been striving and you were burdened and you were tired of working and pressing, come to Jesus and let him bring you rest. Let him bring you rest. Learn from him as he brings rest to your soul. Because you've been striving after the wind. You've been doing the same thing I was doing. Working, moving, pressing, employing our best, striving, being tired, and going all in the wrong way. Just tired. Tired of pressing, tired of reaching for the things of this world just to find out that it's all dust. There is rest in Jesus. He carries burdens for us. And not just a burden for you individually, but a burden for the entire broken cosmos. And why does he carry that burden? So that yours could be lifted. He is our God of work, creating a people of rest. And so the only thing we can do is to submit, to repent, to surrender our lives to a God like that. Let me pray for you as we finish out this year, finish out this service. As the team comes up, Father, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you, Lord, that I have failed far more resolutions and goals than I've ever even thought about keeping. And even the ones that I do keep, I'm pretty sure I keep for the wrong reason a lot of times. Lord, it's in all of us to just want to improve without even really asking the questions of where we're at or why we even want to improve. Lord, we're a church full of people that probably not so bad at setting goals but we don't really look at what kind of goals we're setting or what the win is. We all reach for goals trying to get prizes, just as Paul says, but I don't know that I'm always reaching for goals that mean more of you. Lord, that you would correct our hearts, that by your spirit you would correct our hearts. Lord, I even pray today that even as we worship and as we sing and as we pray and take communion, that you would show us what in our life, what idol is screaming to be fed. Where are there weeds that have been growing for year after year after year and we just won't address it? What is heavier in our life? What is the prize in our eyes if it is not more of you? Lord, I pray that your spirit would build a church that like Paul says, being with you is the greatest achievement that I could ever experience. Yet while I am here, by any means possible, I will press and strain and reach. Lord, that we would be a church that would uh, really believe that, walk in that, and that we would be useful bearing fruit for this city and those around us. And, Lord, I pray for those who are far from you, both here and not in this room. Lord, that you would change their lives, that you would show, you would show those people who are so tired of working, working to make themselves righteous, working to make themselves impressive, Working to make themselves safe or accepted, working to make themselves, I don't know, more comfortable. That you would show them how tired they are and how it's just, as Solomon says, striving after the wind. It's vanity. And that at the same time, we would see that you are calling us to bring our burdens and our work and our striving to you. Because you take that burden off of our shoulders. Lord, that you would change hearts in this room, that you would change hearts in this city. Lord, that you would revolutionize us. And Lord, that we would set goals for this next year, whether it's one or 20. We'd set goals not because we want to be impressive or there is something to prove, but because we just want to know you more. So Lord, we love you. We're very thankful. You're so very good to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.